Well, I mean, we don't have to start the moment the bots get in here. I do have Where's the, my the, waveform? the magic slicing weapon. We have to be I sustainable. The, we can't be wasting waveform. I cut the bits into <laughs> tiny little bits. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So how was everybody's uh, holiday? I uh, ate myself in into oblivion like I was a teenager for the first <laughs> time in a long time. I was doing the penguin waddle into my dad's uh, three seasons room to sit on a couch from which I would not rise for two more hours. <laughs> I got to have some good conversations about land planning and, and agriculture with some family because it's one of the only things that where my interests coincide with theirs. And then I left a, a decolonization pamphlet at the at the place (laughs) wow that's not bad (laughs) i'm also feeling pretty good about mine because i talked my dad out of breaking out a 65 year old board game (laughs) how about yours dan how was your day (laughs) it was actually pretty good uh we we had a a pretty good time although one of the things because it's funny because like when i'm home is the only time i ever actually watch like local news of any kind because Mm -hmm. it's just like this is you're well, already on Twitter. Why would you need something worse? <laughs> yeah, that's well, that's the thing. It's like I'm <laughs> drinking from a fire hose of information every day. I don't usually sit down and watch the, you know, 5:30 news broadcast, but like that's what the older folks do. And one of the things that they had local news had on a segment there was like, "Oh, let's go to the places that are open on Thanksgiving." And also <laughs> and and not in the way you might think, which would be like looking at it like, "Why the hell are these places open?" Why are they making their employees come in? Doesn't this seem kind of screwed up? You know, the angles you might think a reasonable segment Mm -hmm. about that topic would be. Instead, it was, isn't it amazing that L.L. Bean is open on, because of course they did L.L. Bean because it's Maine and we're nothing if not in love with the caricatures of our state. But like, (laughs) (laughs) they're, they're just like, look how great it is that shoppers can come in and get stuff on Thanksgiving. And isn't it so silly that the state has blue laws that keep most places from being open it's so good that ll bean has this exemption because they sell sporting goods oh my god can you imagine being some under fucking paid worker at ll bean standing there when you should be like destroying a giant pile of stuffing and like you look and the fucking local news crew is walking in and you look over to the person you just smoked weed with in the car and you're like (laughs) i can't believe we're going to have to do this <laughs> yeah, that's I. It's very. I don't know. Well, because what they're trying to glorify the idea that oh no, see these people do come into work or something yeah, well, like that. Because because blue laws. If people don't know what blue laws are, blue laws are or the term generally is used for laws that were written back in ye olden times mm-hmm. to ban like various activities specifically on Sundays because they were about preserving the Sabbath and all this stuff. So that's why like in new England, there's a decent number of States where like liquor stores can't be open on Sunday and like bars have like a don't can't be open as long and and, and that sort of stuff. But the, the, this news channel was just lumping this in with them. I'm like, that has nothing to do (laughs) with those other laws. It's illegal for these places to be open because it's a holiday as fucked up a holiday as Thanksgiving is don't get us wrong uh, it is fucked that people we have a whole holiday dedicated to celebrating genocide but if it's a holiday 
workers should have it off unless they're, you know, absolutely essential. And if they and if they have to work, they should get big ass bonuses. Yeah. But, yeah. If you're a first responder, yeah. you know, get paid triple time on Thanksgiving or whatever. And like, that's fine. Yeah. But like everybody else should fucking be off for sure. Yeah. Because yeah, Also, and, like and and trying to stretch the definition of a blue law. It's like it's a blue law if you can't buy a gun. It's Stuckies. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. not. <laughs> blue law doesn't just mean a law I don't like. Like that's, yeah. not, that's not what that term means. The goddamn just... blue laws and the morality police. It's like yeah, yeah maybe stretching well, the term a I, little bit. <laughs> and then and then they all. I mean, for one, they're. I mean, if they're glorifying working on Thanksgiving, then they're just like, well, no, we just need to start Black Friday even earlier. Right. You know, the the biggest day of exploitation of the year. We got to really make sure we, we get there. And, you know, I mean, at least, you know, I guess every year there's always like strikes on Black Friday, especially around like at Amazon. But mm-hmm. uh, I mean, there was a bunch, right? I mean, yeah, 30, there- 30 countries. Yeah, I think that's what I saw, like, because, you know, there's the, we've talked about the annual Black Friday strikes before, like, Germany started doing them a few years ago, and that's kind of spread a little bit to places in France. They do tend to be relatively small, uh, but I do, it seems like it's been getting more popular every year, and there were workers in, in Missouri who walked off here in the U.S., so that was really cool to see. Yeah, I mean, I I guess uh, it's a, it's good to to hit them right on those important days, you know, like we were talking about, like with the Red Cup Rebellion and all that. I mean, also like it's a little fucked up that Thanksgiving is already such a fucked up holiday, and then we put this huge shopping day after mm-hmm. it, and then we bait a bunch of people in countries that don't even celebrate Thanksgiving into caring about Black Friday. Yeah. I- it's like, I, oh, the Americans just had their genocide day. I can't wait to get 30% off a Samsung. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that's what are you doing? I, I saw like all this stuff about like these these like boutique stores in like Rome advertising Black Friday sales. I'm like, you're in Italy. Yeah. What are you doing? <laughs> Truly American cultural imperialism is a plague. <laughs> it makes me crazy just to think about. Yeah, it's, it's oh. wild. Anyways. Anyway. <laughs> podcast work stoppage this is another episode my name is john i'm dan and i am lena and we are entirely listener supported so thank you so much for your contributions on patreon they really do go a very long way if you're not in the discord already hop in there it's a great place to talk to us and talk about the show and just anything worker related you might want to talk about if you are a patron and you don't have stickers yet just message us on patreon and we'll make sure to get them to you asap and if you want to help the show a little bit more you can leave us a five-star review on apple podcasts or just uh, write it on the back of your taxes before you file them with the IRS. Maybe yeah. just, maybe, just, that's, maybe just, that's bad advice. Just go <laughs> go into your nearest Apple store or Best Buy and get every f- display phone subbed to our podcast. Yeah, airdrop our the, podcast to the entire Apple store. <laughs> you can get the, the trademark work stoppage gift card to gift to your family during these holidays in order to subscribe to our great podcast. <laughs> <laughs> The gift card just those don't exist. A piece of paper that you wrote uh, the name of the podcast on. Yeah, (laughs) but uh, we wanted to get started 
this week. Checking in with the longest running strike in the country mm-hmm. uh, because the folks at Warrior Met Cole in Alabama have been on strike for 19 months now. And I feel like they don't really get talked about that much, which is really unfortunate. So No, I mean, you see it every once in a while when like Tom Morello stops by or something. Right. But other than that, like the the news, I mean, this is one of the biggest stories in the country as far as we're concerned. But yeah, it it's it's. a real dearth of coverage yeah so kim kelly recently uh went back to alabama to visit with the striking miners and and find out how things have been going and and she put together a good piece in the real news network so uh you know for folks who are recent listeners to show may not know anything about the warrior met strike so the miners have been on strike at warrior met since april 1st 2021 so again they've been going for literally Almost two years at this point. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, think about it. The ALU just had their victory this year on April 1st. So yeah. if you think that the ALU has been around at JFK 8 for a while, a year longer than that is how long these workers have been on strike. Yeah. And so, like, you know, these folks are striking against the fact that the coal company doesn't want to pay them a living wage. And, and they've brought in scabs to try and break the strike the entire time. And so, you know, these folks, again, this is nearly two years and these folks have kept up weekly rallies they they've hold, held all sorts of solidarity events like you said john tom Morello even even stopped by a couple months ago but i mean of course whenever a strike lasts this long it it, it is always can be really difficult for the workers to keep up that sort of momentum so there's been an understandable drop off in the day-to-day active participation in the pickets which also has the state has played a role in with the endless series of injunctions against effective picketing methods. Um, and and in, in cahoots with, you know, local media, local and state government officials, and just the toothlessness of federal labor law, those have all combined to side with the company and make the miners feel pretty isolated, uh, you know, working in a very... <laughs> hostile anti-labor environment and you know this is all while the company is trying to paint the strikers as violent uh, taking help from the corporate press and capitalist judges to win injunction after injunction against any sort of picketing that might do anything to make it even just annoying to be using scabs to replace these workers right Uh, and and they like they've been giving the police in the area have been giving free (laughs) police escorts to scabs again for a year over a year and a half and a lot of times police departments will charge things like two thousand dollars an hour for that kind of stuff so you know how tightly they're in cahoots with the company for this well yeah i mean if even if they're doing it for free i mean obviously having it paid for by the company is is bad enough and then you know they're them just doing charity work for these large corporations in order to do strike but uh, uh yeah strike busting i mean is it's disgraceful yeah, well, yeah. and I mean, it, it all plays up the the perceived violent image of the striking workers. I mean, you have Chris Mallory, who is a UMWA official, who told Kelly, uh, quote, they're painting this picture of us as, quote, these are people that are here to do violence. We're just here to try to get a collective bargaining agreement. And it, it's crazy to see, like, the really high level of coordination between the company and the police and the media and everybody to, to paint them with this same brush. Uh, but the workers aren't taking it lying down. Instead, they recently held a march to protest the use of scabs and potentially to set up a temporary hard picket blockading the entrance of the mine, which is 
very cool, great thing to go for. But unfortunately, the company's lawyers did manage to get wind of it and sent the union a threatening letter uh, that indeed threatened them with jail and hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines. Their march was also surrounded by cops from the minute it stepped off, uh, just adding another tally to the way the state's repressive apparatus has been functioning for the capitalist class and not the workers, specifically in this instance where it seems to be especially highlighted. Well, yeah. yeah, and then we have uh, the president of the UMWA, Cecil Roberts, who said the night of the march, uh, you know, it, it was really talking about his frustration and this frustration that the strikers feel with, you know, getting having the law used against them, where he said, uh, quote, we've got to be more active and we have to be more militant and we've got to participate in nonviolent civil, civil disobedience and shut this place down, end quote. And I feel that almost... I don't want to say desperation, but, you know, with the way that they're being repressed so hard, it, you have to keep rallying for that, you know, revolutionary optimism in order to keep people going because this is like 600 days is is too long for the capitalists to be able to hold out. Yeah, I mean, it's because it's it's one of those things that's so frustrating about the way U.S. labor law works is, is because like the NLRA tells you basically, oh, no, no, you're allowed to form a union. If you think you have bad conditions at work, you should f- form a union. So you form a union. OK, cool. Now negotiate a better contract. You, you negotiate a better contract. The company says, screw you guys. We're bringing in scabs. We're not going to we're not going to accept this. And so then the NLRA says, oh, well, if you have an intransigent employer, you should file an unfair labor practice. So you do that. Nothing happens. All right. Well, you know, you've tried the legal system. Well, you can you can try your hand at a strike, and so the workers do that. But don't strike in a way that might work, right? Because that's illegal. Because if you you know call on people to boycott the product, secondary boycott, totally illegal. You call on companies that work with Warrior Men to engage in a sympathy strike, can't do that, illegal. You decide to try. Hey, okay, uh, fine. Uh, if we can't bring in other people to help us with the strike from the community, we, we could do a sit-down strike. Nope, can't do that. Violation of property rights, violation of Taft-Hartley, illegal, uh, will be responded to by police violence. So you say, okay, fine. We'll just set up a picket outside and we'll block the scabs from going in. And then immediately the court gets an injunction to block your picket. Can't do that. Made illegal. And so, and like, the cops start escorting the scabs. Right, exactly. And so it's, it's time after time after time where workers have tried to come up with, again, nonviolent, non destructive ways to tell the company, hey, you need to negotiate with us on a livable contract we can all agree to. But over and over and over again, the state just says, if you have an effective tactic, we will ban it. All you're allowed to do is protest in ways that are more or less uh, impotent because that's how this whole thing is structured. And at the same time, you have all these grifter right-wingers talking about how much they are actually the champions of the ruling class. And these are, for the most part, the same representatives. Because, again, this is in Alabama, so it's a red state. So it's mostly Republicans who are all out there talking about, we represent the real working man. And and normally when they do these appeal to class as an identity, not an actual class thing, mm-hmm. you would think it would be coal miners would be the people they would try and use as a as like, look, see, I care about the workers. Nope, none of them has said a goddamn thing about these workers, which is no surprise to us. But it's one of those things that is just like, it should be so obvious to anybody that when any of these politicians, of course, on the Republican side, but even on the Democrats, 
when they say that sort of rhetoric, just look at their actions. They never support these workers in the same way that the Democrats are so horned up about trying to use Congress to crush a potential coming railroad strike. So, mm-hmm. like, I, I think that that Roberts' frustration there and the rest of these workers' frustration is absolutely justified. And And, and I mean, like, these folks have been standing out there for 600 days. And the law just puts them in a straitjacket. So, like, I think it's just this, it's so important that we always remember that these folks are out there, that they're on strike, that if you're in the South and you can do anything to even just, like, showing up to one rally to show your support, like, that level of community engagement can help raise folks, uh, you know, spirits so much. And if, and I, I try and share in the Solidarity and Funds channel, uh, folks from Warrior Med often post about, mm-hmm. you know, fundraisers especially now as we're getting towards the holidays you know thankfully umwa leadership has been supporting the workers standing by them the whole way they've devoted the 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 strike fund to these folks it's the only big part of the reason they've been able to stay out for 600 days but like that strike pay only goes so far and it's hard to provide for a family during the holidays like like that so i'll i'll put put the 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 strike fund gofundme in there but like i roberts's point is 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 right like they workers do have to be more active and more militant, but he's also Mm -hmm. pointing to the fact that like labor law makes it so hard to do that. And, and we are really Mm going to have to start thinking outside the box with the ways we try and and push back. Yeah. It makes me want to go back to that that classic line that I think we just had uh, in one of our recent episodes and in one of our recent overtime episodes is, you know, Taft can mine it. Hartley can uh, haul it and then Biden can shove it. There we go. That's (laughs) right. Yeah. Well, you know, and we're definitely, uh, well, we're not, saying that you should violate Taft-Hartley, but we're definitely not saying that you shouldn't violate Taft-Hartley. I think the other thing you, you said was, uh, you know, strike for the conditions or for the lo- legislation you want, not the legislation you have. Yeah, there yeah. we go. <laughs> there you, yeah, that's a very good way to phrase it. But anyways, you know, we're going to keep going with our stories, but like we, we never want to like let the fact that these folks have been out there for almost two years Continue, like go unnoticed. So you mm-hmm. know, all solidarity with the the warrior met miners. Absolutely. Well, as long as we're talking about really big strikes, let's talk about the UK strike wave that has been growing as the RMT has extended its strike dates through the holidays. So this is continuing this week as we see academic workers hitting the picket lines and rail workers announcing the expansion of their strike. Last week, members of the RMT voted to continue their strikes through the holidays, announcing new 48-hour rail shutdowns for December 13th through the 14th, 16th through the 17th, and January 3rd and 4th, and 6th and 7th. 1,000 sanitation workers who are also members of the RMT RMT, and help keep the rail system clean announced on Saturday, November 26th, that they would be joining the strike as well, their first ever work stoppage. We heard from General Secretary Mick Lynch in a statement who said, quote, we have been reasonable, but it is impossible to find a negotiated settlement when the dead hand of government is presiding over these talks. I don't fucking know what dead hand of government means. That might be some cool English turn of phrase. It's very cool sounding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he continued also saying uh, the employers are in disarray and saying different things to different people, sometimes at the same time. This whole process has become a farce and that only the new secretary of state can resolve. 
When I meet him later this week, I will deliver that message. In the meantime, our message to the public is we are sorry to inconvenience you, but we urge you to direct your anger and frustration at the government and railway employers during this latest phase of action. We call upon all trade unionists in Britain to take a stand and fight for better paying conditions in their respective industries. And we will seek to coordinate strike action and demonstrations where we can. Working people across our class need a pay rise, and we are determined to win that for our members in the RMT. Hell yeah. That's absolutely yeah, banging. Yeah, rocks. Yeah, well, and, you know, he didn't stop there. He also called out the Tory government directly for dragging the strike out by demanding that the rail companies refuse to negotiate. Absolutely demonic move. Uh, Lynch said that the senior negotiators for the rail companies have told him that the Department of Transport has stopped them from offering a better deal to the workers, even one that is nowhere close to the workers' needs, because the Tory government's slavish ideological determination to defeat the workers and to crush the strike, which is like... That's insane that you have an already relatively very conservative Department of Transport that's like, look, we wanted to give you a relatively shitty deal, but the Tories barged into our office and said, make it worse. Um, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, like, <laughs> not even telling them, like, you, like, have to agree to the workers' demands, which is what the government should be doing. Mm -hmm. But literally telling them, you can't negotiate, we won't let you, <laughs> like, is absolutely wild but i do think it's interesting to look at because like that move is not stopping workers from joining the strike wave the tories can put up every you know uh, mm -hmm. brick wall they think they want to they can pass every pro scab anti-worker legislation let agency workers be used as scabs like you know threaten the unions with all sorts of bullshit but it's not stopping like more and more and more workers from joining the strike wave. Like uh, on Thursday and Friday, the 24th and 25th, 70,000 researchers, academics, and other higher education workers launched the largest academic worker strike in UK history. So we have the biggest academic strike in UK and US history going on at the same time. That's which so is, cool. Uh, pretty, I think tells you the state, of labor conditions in the Western Academy. <laughs> yeah, it's almost uh, like the U.S. and the U.K. are hitting some kind of turning point. Maybe you could call it turning point U.S. <laughs> and turning point. <laughs> Take that, Charlie right? Kirk, you motherfucker. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we heard from Joe Grady, who was the general secretary of the UCU, who told The Guardian, quote, staff are working weekends as routine to keep the show on the road. There is nothing else we can do other than take strike action to change the sector. So it's like, you know, the, the Tory government can try to clamp down and be as austere and unforgiving as they want. It's just like, it's not going to change the material conditions uh -huh. that the, the workers are facing, and it's not going to change the workers' response to it, you know, basically by one fucking iota at this point. Yeah, I mean, like, the cost of living crisis that's going on is is so huge that mm -hmm. there has been nearly a million workers who have gone on strike during this period. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, in just uh, three weeks, over 100,000 nurses will add their ranks to the picket lines as well. And will, I mean, like, as we'll probably see, the uh, Tory government will not stop their austerity policies. Um what is the Sunak government? Oh, yeah. That's Rishi, Rishi Sunak, Sunak, the current prime the, minister. The prime minister. Oh. Yeah, they're... Okay, yeah. Uh, I just forget because they've changed prime ministers <laughs> yeah, so, I know, so much. Right? Liz who? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, like, the Tories aren't going to do anything to, to actually, like, support this. This is going to come down to the, the companies... Uh, 
having tons of losses and, and just basically hemorrhaging money due to these strikes. And we're hoping that that leads these uh, many, many different sectors of workers to victory. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been wild. Like you would, in most cases like this, you would think the nominally liberal party uh, would usually try and at least opportunistically support the workers, mm-hmm. even if they don't mean it wholeheartedly just to score political points. But with Keir Starmer <laughs> in charge of labor, you kind of have two Tory government like mm-hmm. parties. So <laughs> you, you basically have the political class congealed into an immovable object coming up against the working class in the UK as the unstoppable force. And now we get to see what happens when they collide. <laughs> So. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of an interesting dynamic, isn't it? Like uh, British politicians, they certainly lie as much as American ones, but they don't seem as capable of going out of their way to make up a whole story. Like, yeah. you know, Joe Biden like has this weird mythos of being a union guy, even though he does exactly nothing to help unions. And like the Labor Party in the UK doesn't even try. They're like, eh, fuck him. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's ridiculous. But so we mentioned that the biggest academic strike in the U.S. is going on at the same time. So we wanted to check in on the strike at the University of California system, which has now stretched into its third week. Uh, The largest strike in the country, and in fact the largest strike in the past three years, with over uh, 48,000, close to 50,000 academic workers, have been on the picket lines now, uh, you know, since the beginning of the month. Uh, And they've seen continued growth of support from the community. You've had California Teamsters have refused to cross the picket line to make deliveries and have even joined the picket lines in solidarity at times. Uh, And one of the things that I thought was really interesting, there was an interview in Jacobin uh, with some of the workers who are like organizers for this strike. And they were talking about the ways that the strike has actually helped bring them together more. Like, so one of the workers, Kobe Hansen, who is a PhD student in Hispanic studies at UC Irvine, said, quote, what I've seen with this strike specifically is that we've been able to make meaningful connections with graduate students in other departments within days or hours of meeting. I don't think that would have happened if the strike hadn't given us that space to meet and make those connections, end quote. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like the class struggles bringing them together, right? Yeah, it's almost like there's a reflexive, you might even call it dialectical relationship between organizing and the solidarity element that either helps you get started organizing or is produced by organizing. You you truly love to see consciousness being built through struggle. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and we're seeing that with the striking workers who've received support from undergraduate students, Mm -hmm. faculty, and members of the community. On Wednesday, November 23rd, over 150 uh, University of California faculty members issued a pledge to support the strike and refuse to cross the picket line. The teachers will refuse to scab uh, on TAs who are striking and will not issue grades until the strike ends. Uh, and, you know, basically withholding any uh, other labor on campus. Yeah, it's really, really cool to see that kind of solidarity. Uh, And they also didn't stop there. They additionally pledged to ensure that workers are not retaliated against for striking and called on the rest of the faculty to join them in their support for the workers. So this connection, you know, in turn, potentially making many more connections of solidarity to these striking well, workers and if there's any university of california strikers listening you should write down a list of all of the teachers who didn't yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean Fair hey enough. look we saw how effective that name and shame policy that like the najwan support network has been doing of, mm-hmm. of wage thieves in, in canada i i don't know i think that's a i think it's a good 
tactic that we should be using more often when people yeah, absolutely. underhanded labor shit. I mean, corporations love singling workers out. Why shouldn't we be singling out their executives? Um, well, also- well, and I mean, it, it's it can be tough, though, with, like, faculty because, like, we should be encouraging faculty to join with the students because mm-hmm. the faculty are not yeah. inherently bosses, even if, sure. of course, the university wants them to identify that way. And if they seem to based on their salary tilt one way or the other. Cause I did think it was interesting. One, one Cal, one UC worker mm-hmm. graphed the, uh, salary of the, the various faculty and found that the higher a teacher's salary, the less likely they were to support the strike, which what? Huh. no way. That's so crazy. Yeah. It's, I wonder why police salaries are sometimes the highest <laughs> in very small underserved communities, <laughs> particularly rural yeah. ones. Um, but anyways, uh, <laughs> thankfully, uh, despite some folks not supporting the strike, there has been a really broad support. What there has also been un- is a lot of underhanded bullshit from the administration of the colleges in response to the strike, including mm-hmm. what seems to be every school's first go-to uh, racism fucked up response, which is going after international students they oh, always yes. do this mm-hmm. like this we've heard this this at every single one of the academic strikes we've covered because like at uc san diego they issued a memo to workers Im- implying very strongly but not saying it explicitly so they couldn't be held accountable for it that international workers in the country on h1b or e3 visas could have their visas revoked for striking which uh Despite how racist U.S. immigration law is, that's actually not true. Uh, These workers totally do have the right to strike, and striking will have no impact on their visa. All this is is a transparent attempt by the administrators at UC San Diego to try and divide workers against each other by nationality, which frankly is disgusting. I think like. I do want to put a uh, caveat in there because we we should say that there is no legal recourse that can be used but when we look at actual immigration cases they are handled by basically border agents who have impunity to make whatever decision they want based on how they're feeling that day and if they happen to look someone up and see that they're a striker they might you know deny a visa because that's the kind of fucking people they are sure but like to be clear like the law which of course is fake and can be used be warped to be whatever the capitalists want it to be that's true but when you take that background asterisk out of it mm. like right. they are yeah. from the legal perspective they're allowed to strike and and so like UCSD putting out this memo is just so underhanded cuz all they're trying to do is make these workers afraid and that's mm-hmm. like that's really fucked up so like We've seen, thankfully, there's been some progress in negotiations so far. Uh, the administration has been forced to agree to worker proposals on protections for teaching assistance, uh, ironically, immigration rights for postdoc workers, and for new protections for workplace illness and injury for student researchers. But there's still a lot of hangups on a living wage for these workers, and so there's going to need to be more and more pressure put on these institutions to actually pay workers for their labor. <laughs> mm-hmm. a, a a wild concept 
I know. <laughs> well, because they've been, you know, putting up a stone wall and completely refusing to meet with their workers on, frankly, like absolutely core issues. You have wages, housing costs, tuition reimbursement for international students. And uh, the, the, the university has also called for the union to agree to, quote, neutral mediation, which, of course, is uh, code for mediation that will inevitably favor the bosses. So you have, uh, in response, Jackie Koo, who is the unit chair for UAW 2865 at UC Irvine, told the Center Square, quote, we want a system that is accessible, that is equitable, that is keeping up with the UC ideals, and we're saying we can't do that if the UC doesn't put its money where its mouth is. So we're going to stay out here. We're going to keep fighting this fight. We're going to keep showing the UC that they can't brush this under the rug. And that's really huge energy. We absolutely love to see it. And also... Uh, wages, housing costs, and tuition reimbursement are not like, uh, you know, uh, things fringe you can benefits. get by without. Yeah, they're not fringe benefits. Those are core yeah. issues. Those are absolutely yeah. structural to employment. And, I mean, in another story where things are commonly swept under the rug in mm -hmm. our, you know, electric vehicle sector, we've got another uh, story here about Rivian, which we had mm. talked previously about how they were doing rampant wage theft by cl uh, classifying people as, like, different multiple contractors mm -hmm. and putting them at different wages despite working at the exact same facility doing the same job. Well, uh, we have additional ba uh, bad conditions and a way that the UAW is fighting back and trying to unionize the Rivian plant. So, I mean, as I kind of alluded to, the race to capture the electric vehicle market has been heating up lately and unfortunately is meant to surge in labor violations as well. This past week, over a dozen Rivian workers filed complaints against the company for safety violations. As reported by Josh Idelson in Bloomberg, workers say that they were provided so little uh, personal protective equipment or PPE that they had to share respirators. I you're not even you're not even supposed to use masks really more than once and they're like straight up sharing respirators uh workers have suffered crushed hands broken feet and ribs lacerations and other injuries due to improper safety protocols one worker also reported that a manager told them to use damaged electrical cables that they had that had originally been thrown away as defective. I mean, this is exactly what we see um, very consistently when we look at tech companies and their quote unquote innovations, especially from you know freaks derogatory like Elon Musk, Musk at Tesla. Uh, yes. You know, they they think that they have this great you know innovation where oh look at that we are just we're we're working the uh we're, we're working people harder we're lowering safety standards and we're not having a quality control process look at this vast <laughs> capitalist innovation everyone yeah i mean it, it's any time that you hear people talking about it, it's like oh this company's disrupting an industry 90 percent of that time what that means is they are uh breaking labor law <laughs> like that's <laughs> absolutely that's, that, that's pretty much the innovation that they're talking about is just treating their workers bad, paying them less, and not actually living up to the safety precautions that are supposed to be taken in any manufacturing enterprise. So, I mean, workers have told Bloomberg that in addition to the many safety violations that they have already seen, there have been tons that like were near misses, like stuff that could easily have been horrible accidents that just barely weren't. Like, uh, you know, one worker, Don Jackson, 
who filed one of the complaints against Rivian said that trucks frequently veer into pedestrian aisles, knocking into equipment that could then bump into people. Uh, and it, of course, this isn't just like, I don't know, a toaster that's veering out into the aisle. It's a truck. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's not the sort of thing that if it bonks into you, it's some mild thing. Uh, and in addition, I mean, there, there are also other conditions that have been really harsh on the workers that have received no response. So like one worker, Heather Barstorf, had written a letter to Rivian's CEO, Rod Scarringe, really just begging him to do something about the unsafe condition she was facing. She's pregnant, and she had written, quote, Many people in my area have become sick with flu-like symptoms from exposure to the galvanized metal parts that we are welding. I've asked for accommodation as a pregnant person, including ventilation for paint fumes and respiratory protection numerous times and have been denied, end quote. And she received no reply to her letter to the CEO. No, the company is too busy telling the public that there's absolutely zero problems at this facility. Look, the dozen employees only represent a small percentage of the workers. And uh, the workers, you know, who have lost a hand or a foot hear this i'm sure and uh, are absolutely outraged and then the company's just like look you know those injuries are rare they don't happen a lot and it's like compared to what you know Com- compared to <laughs> tesla where like they make cars that blow up well, yeah maybe like, not but like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like that's the thing like if if i come up to you and stick your hand in a in a stamping press and you lose your hand and then nobody else loses their hand in the press i'm like well, but see, look how safe everything is. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous to, I mean, like, when these very serious uh, safety issues come up and they're hand-waved away, I mean, it's just a, a classic example of of the, I don't know, just nonchalant way in which the capitalist class, like, treats safety and in the way in which people have to live their lives not only while at work, but continue to live their lives outside of work as if work is the only thing that matters. I mean, and, and you know, we talked with uh, Nate Holdren about, like, the, the way that safety is treated here, or at least, like, workers' comp law and stuff like that is treated here in the United States. And it, it is, like, you know, this standardized process which removes the actual stories of these people and the actual, like, st- like things that are affecting their lives and and you know i guess that's one of the things that we're trying to highlight here is you know that this is not just like a a piece of paper that you file because someone lost a hand this is Mm -hmm. a person's life well yeah at least in this country we have an institution called osha that maybe we all ought to be thankful for anyway (laughs) speaking of osha let's talk about them not doing fucking anything when a caterpillar worker dies in frankly one of the most horrifying ways I can yeah, think yeah. of. So a content warning on this one. This is a heavy story uh, yeah. involving worker death. So uh, might want, if that doesn't sound like something you want to sit through, totally get it. Uh, just skip forward I'll, a few minutes. I'll I put guess. a, I'll put a note on where the segment ends to skip this segment uh jump down or jump over to minute 49 and 50 seconds. Yeah, so this story, the, the news about this story actually dropped like a week or two ago, but there, it was, there were very few details, so I didn't bother to put it in the show. But thankfully, uh, Michael Sonato over at The Guardian, who is one of, I think, our most frequently used sources, really good labor writer, 
actually looked into this situation, and it's uh, unfortunately even more horrifying than the initial information would lead you to believe. So one thing, I just want to frame this story as I think the most important thing we can understand from this story is the way that it illustrates what OSHA's actual function is. Because what most of the time what we think OSHA's function is is what OSHA says its function is, which is to protect American workers and to keep American workplaces safe. That is not what OSHA's function is. Uh, that's just what they tell you. What their actual function is is to convince you that that is true so that you will not attempt to remedy safety issues via a union, via a strike, via a walkout, via a sit-down, via any of these other ways that workers have in the past addressed safety issues directly. OSHA exists to tell you, hey, don't worry about it. We've got proper channels. Go through the proper channels and everything will be taken care of. Yeah, they're like a theater company that puts on a dare to resist strikes and unions performance. <laughs> yeah. So... And, and I think that the, the details of this case will make that seem pretty clear. So this is about a worker, uh, Stephen Dierkes, who died at a Caterpillar uh, foundry in Mapleton, Illinois, back actually in, in June. But we're only just now getting the details about this nearly six months later. Dierkes had only been on the job for nine days when he fell into an 11-foot-deep pot of molten iron while attempting to take a sample at the facility. And he was immediately, uh, or at least, you know, you hope, immediately incinerated by falling into the pot of metal. And OSHA investigated Dierkes' death. Honestly, I'm surprised they actually investigated it. But, and they found, quote, if required safety guards or fall protection had been installed, the 39-year-old employee's ninth day on the job might not have been their last, which appropriately and correctly puts all the blame for this death on Caterpillar. So that's the last uh, nice thing I will say about OSHA in this story, that they did at least place the blame on the correct party for this death. Uh, because after they issued that report, OSHA's proposed remedy for this situation is a $145,000 fine, which now that does sound like a lot of money to normal people, because for us, $145,000 is a lot of money. Not, it's not the equivalent of a human life, but it's a decent amount of money. But to Caterpillar, $145,000 is nothing. Caterpillar is the 65th largest company in the United States. They brought in 48 billion dollars in revenue last year just last year $145,000 doesn't even show up on their spreadsheets it's literally too small yeah they will not notice this fine they will happily pay the fine they would pay a fine 10 times that size and not blink well and to, to be clear this fine does not go to the workers family no this goes to the treasury of the united states and then the worker's family has to file a civil action to recover it from the government, which is very tricky and specifically designed to be very tricky and next to impossible for most people. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is not an isolated incident. Like, workers at the foundry say that this actually fits a pattern. Uh, Senato talked to many current and former workers who from the Mapleton Foundry. One worker said, quote, there were no guardrails, no harness procedures, and nothing to ensure you wouldn't fall into the massive holes filled with iron. And he, he 
he talked about the, the worker's death, saying, as he was collecting a sample of iron with the spoon, he fell in and churned up. And he, the, the, the former worker continued, I'm very surprised this is the first time it's ever happened. When I worked up there, there were numerous times I thought, man, are they really going to have me do this? For instance, if the iron level was low, they wanted you to try and get a sample or a temp anyways, which would require you to lean over the hole a bit to be able to reach the iron. The melters are always around 2,400 to 2,600 Fahrenheit. So if you fall in one, there is zero chance of survival. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really, really high level of hazard to be forcing workers to be in. Another worker who actually quit due to those conditions said, quote, there was a lack of concern whenever we brought up a safety issue there. Most of the time it was overlooked or their fix created a whole new safety issue or multiple issues. So... I mean, the workers at the facility have established a clear pattern of total disregard for worker safety by their employer, Caterpillar, which clearly is not going to change due to an absolutely tiny $145,000 fine. Again, huge to you or me, but this doesn't go to the family, and Caterpillar isn't even going to notice that on their spreadsheets. I mean, they make construction equipment, for God's sake. You can't even buy anything from Caterpillar for $145,000. Yeah, and I mean, to to talk about the family, I mean, Caterpillar has done nothing for mm-hmm. for their family uh i mean since the in- incident uh how do i pronounce this guy's last name dirkus uh yeah uh dirkus's wife uh told the guardian that the family has received no assistance or support whatsoever and are now struggling to pay the bills she said my children are left without a, without their father i am left without my fiance my partner my best friend all because they didn't want to take a better safety precaution for this t- for that type of work as far as caterpillar i feel that they are murderers it's a slaughterhouse no one should have to lose their life like this they do not have any compassion for human decency at all they are a company of no humanity and i mean i th- i think that that highlights it pretty well as to the kind of depravity that capitalists have towards the people who are making them the money uh yeah. i mean he joins the 5000 other americans who die on the work or die on the job every year which i mean is honestly a, a, a likely undercount because of the way that enforcement and osha even exists uh in the first place you know i mean the idea that there is this fine which is you know i mean obviously it means legal uh you know that means that it's legal to kill workers you just have to take a small amount of your profits and put it into the government's treasury and uh and i don't know it's just so ridiculous that this is that this is deemed acceptable by our our society yeah, well, because I mean, the thing is, you always hear whenever this sort of stuff happens, it's like, well, you know, it, look, it's it's awful, it's tragic, but manufacturing is dangerous, and and sometimes horrible accidents just happen, and every time somebody says that, they are lying, because yes, manufacturing is dangerous, and yes, there are accidents that do happen from a seemingly purely random occurrence, but Caterpillar is a major engineering firm. Mm-hmm. Caterpillar knows the scientific way that you handle safety on the job. Uh, they employ many, many engineers whose entire job is to comply with OSHA safety regulations. And they also employ many accountants to tell them that doing that 
is more expensive than simply paying the fine. Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately the problem because this is the thing. Like, it's not that Caterpillar doesn't know that there are safety protocols they could have taken to prevent this. Like, it's not ignorance that led to this. It's a cold monetary calculation. It is you look at the balance sheet and you say, how much are we going to lose if people fall into this pit of molten iron and die? $145,000? Okay. How much would it cost to actually implement proper safety protocols and make sure that that never happens? Like, for instance, when you have a catwalk that has these sorts of holes or gaps in it over a you know dangerous area and you want to make sure nobody falls in, you can put in like a harness system. Mm-hmm. Uh, that harness system will cost you money and it'll cost you money to have somebody to monitor it to make sure that people are actually following the protocols, that, that all of the equipment is actually checked and it's safe and it's strong. And that does cost money. And they have apparently made the, the calculation and, you know, from an accounting perspective, they're probably right that it probably was cheaper to let this happen and let this guy die. And that is the problem. Because as we talked about in that interview with with Nate Holdren, under capitalism, everyone is reduced to the value of our labor. And so we show up only as a number on balance sheets. We don't show up as people. This guy doesn't show up on their list as Stephen Durkis. He shows up as worker number whatever with whatever his salary was going to be. That's it. And that's the problem. Like, there's we can we can and should and and will you know push for better labor reform with more teeth but none of that is going to change the fundamental relationship that capitalism has to human life which is that it treats it as something you can put a number on so like i just want to impress on people that, that like if you work in a dangerous uh, working environment and dangerous work environments do not just mean you know an iron factory or like a, a working on a skyscraper 40 meters in the air it's working in a slaughterhouse it can it's working at a dollar general yeah like there are dangerous work environments all over this country faced by millions of workers every day and it is so important that you understand that osha is not protecting you ever the only people that can protect you are you and your fellow workers making your boss actually implement the safety protocols that are necessary to keep you safe. <laughs> and I really, I just think it is so important that people take that into consideration because the, the state doesn't give a shit because the state works for the people that own these companies. They don't work for us. So like, we can't depend on them to fix this. Like we can only fix this ourselves. And so I know that, you know, gone on this long rant about this, but like, no, no, it's important. It's important. But I mean, to, to move on, we can talk about, you know, workers standing together to Mm -hmm. fight for something better. When we see the machinists, the teamsters and the flight attendants, uh, and their attempts to create a wall to wall union at Delta. And there you go. Another dangerous work environment, an airport, very dangerous work environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, we have previously discussed the efforts of the uh, Association of Flight Attendants or the AFA to unionize the workers at Delta. Uh, Basically, the last major airline without a majority union workforce. Past efforts to form a union at Delta have come very close to succeeding. But now there's been a major development with this year's push that could help them 
make this drive really successful. On Monday, November 11th, the Teamsters and the Machinists announced their joint support for the AFA's drive and their plans to actively coordinate drives to bring all 45,000 employees at Delta under a wall-to-wall union. The AFA uh, will focus on the flight attendants, the uh, international amalgamation of machinists, right? That's what the IMA or IAM is? or I think it's International Association. Inter- international Association of Machinists uh, will focus on the baggage handlers, yeah. and the Teamsters will focus on Delta's mechanics, and all three unions will work together with their efforts rather than competing. We have Richie Johnson, the head of IAM's air transport unit, said in a speech, we will go after Delta Airlines, but we were but we're going to do it differently. We have to stop fighting other unions. We're so excited to join with the AFA CWA and the Teamsters to bring Delta workers a greater voice on the job. Together, we're going to build on the success of a great airline for the benefit of the workers and the carriers and the flying public, uh, end quote. Yeah, I think this is like really cool. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I was very excited when I saw this announcement because, yeah, there have been a few attempts separately to organize like the flight attendants, the mechanics, but it's always been piecemeal. Not that there was anything wrong with those attempts. Like, you know, uh, people who are airline mechanics have a pretty different job that, that than people who are flight attendants, both very important and vital to keeping the airline industry going, but just a different type of work. So it's been understandable that, you know, the machinists and the teamsters have gone after the, the crews out on the, uh, uh, like who are actually like, you know, doing the mechanical work on the planes and the AFA has gone after the flight attendants. But the fact that you now have these organizations coming together to coordinate their their efforts, I think is a really good qualitative step forward in the right direction. Because like only 20% of Delta's workers are unionized. I think like their pilots are the biggest single like unionized group. And really the vast majority of their workers are ununionized, which has had the direct impact of them being super exploited. Delta produced higher profits than any other major airline and profits are stolen wages. So like it's a direct one-to-one line between the fact that these workers do not have a labor organization and the fact that they are getting fleeced by their bosses more than the rest of the airline industry. So like with other great statements on this, like from uh, AFA president, Sarah Nelson, who, you know, we love Sarah Nelson. Yeah. Sarah Nelson is, is great. Great. I'm pretty sure that I used her as a sample in one of my songs that I'm creating recently. Nice. I mean, I believe it. She rocks. She's one of the most like militant uh, union leaders uh, in the U S right now. Like Mm -hmm. she said, like, Flight attendants have been organizing over the course of the turbulent pandemic and have begun officially collecting cards. We're thrilled to support Delta fleet service workers organizing with the IAM and Delta mechanics organizing with the Teamsters. Together, workers will lock in what they love about their work at Delta and gain the respect that comes with a union contract. And of course, from the Teamsters, we got a statement from Sean O'Brien saying that the Teamsters are proud to support flight attendants and fleet service workers joining AFA CWA and IAM. We will win industry leading standards for workers at Delta and we will do it together. End quote. Hell yeah. I love these two of my favorite. I actually also have uh, uh, Sean O'Brien in a different song that I did. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I just like love these really, really great voices in labor coming together to fight for a wall-to-wall union in a place that is the least unionized of the you know flight industry in the country. Yeah, I think it's it's a really, really encouraging move to see because like this is the sort of coordination we need all over the place because there's so many times that we see 
unions doing good drives. And I don't want to criticize it like where they're like, okay, we cover this type of worker at this business. A third of their workforce is that worker. So we're going to try and organize them, which makes sense. Totally logical. But then there's the other two thirds of the workers. And maybe it makes more sense for them to be recognized by a different union just because of the way things are structured. But there's no coordination because, you know, it's you've got one union going after the, the workers that make sense for them. The other workers, the other union, maybe they have another priority. But getting these unions to come together and coordinate their drive, I feel like is going to like be kind of like a force multiplier here mm-hmm. where it becomes like more than just it's not just that you have three times the unions doing this, that that level of unity gives them the opportunity to get, I think, a really, really powerful uh, organizing effort going here. And and if it succeeds, will not only be great for the Delta workers and the rest of the workers in the airline industry, but I think shows a model that could be used at so many other places, like, I don't know, Amazon mm-hmm. <laughs> or yeah. other big companies. So I, I think this is one to watch. I think it's really encouraging news. Yeah, this makes me want to... I'm uh, going to put... That's my song with Sarah Nelson at the end of this episode. Not just because it's hard for me to find good songs to put at the end of episodes, but also because I think that that's one of the better ones I've written lately. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So one final story before we go to our weekly check-in with Starbucks. We are doing a one last international story this week. So earlier this year, we talked about a big trucker strike that happened in South Korea that ended up like temporarily crippling the South Korean export economy as workers fought back against attempts by their the recently elected right-wing government to end a law that existed providing a minimum wage for certain truckers. And they were successful. Uh, you know, after shutting down much of South Korea's economy for a week, inflicting $1.5 billion in damages to companies that refused to negotiate with them, these truckers did manage to stop the government from allowing the minimum wage for uh, specifically for container transport and cement truck drivers to sunset. That that was what they were going to do. They were going to let the uh, law go out of uh, effect. But they were able to force the government to agree to a deal. Uh, And in order to stop the strike, the uh, Yoon government agreed that they would make the safe rate minimum wage program permanent and would begin examining, expanding it to other truck drivers. But this was back in June, and they have since gone back on their agreement and have said, well, uh, actually, you know, uh, when we said when we, said we were going to make that permanent, uh, we meant uh, extend it for three years. <laughs> we <laughs> meant temporary. Thing. When we said permanent, we definitely <laughs> meant temporary. <laughs> yeah. So... Basically, the gov- the right-wing government in, in South Korea just reneged on the deal and, and refused to actually hold up their end of the bargain. And they were actually pretty open about why. Uh, the, the policy chief of the ruling right-wing party, the People Power Party, which is an ironic name for Classic a company, example for, of for, right-wing people using yeah. left-wing language to, mm-hmm. to like launder their right-wing agenda. Yeah, so this this policy chief, uh, Song Il-jong, said, quote, if safe rates are applied to those truckers, the public will have to take on more of the logistics cost burden. To minimize public burden, we have decided to not expand the system to other freight types. Oh, that's so, so interesting. So there's two parties in this interaction, <laughs> the, the drivers and the public, and there's nobody else. Nobody, nobody else, else is interacting with money at all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> also, the, the drivers don't count as the public. They should have no, to be eviscerated. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, just re- I was reading that. I was like, the public will have to take on more of the burden. 
I'm like, I don't. Yeah, as you were saying, John, I'm like, I think there's another group in there yeah. who who could take on some of the burden. And actually, it would be pretty cheap for them to take on some mm-hmm. of that burden because they have a lot of money. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, but thankfully, the KPTU, the, the big umbrella union that the uh, Trucker Solidarity Group belongs to, uh, didn't take this in, under advisement and just be like, hey, this is mean. They're just like, okay, fine. You're going back on the deal? I guess the strike's not over then. <laughs> and so, well, last- and this is the this is the union that walks r- real rank and file style when doing their marches. Like, they look like a standing army. They are straight up badasses. That's so cool. Yeah. So, like, uh, on last Thursday on, on, on Thanksgiving uh, here, they, the truckers just launched the strike again uh, in, with reporting from Hank Ray, I think. Um, apologize for if I mispronounce that. Uh, so truckers began stopping the transport of raw materials for the steel and chemical industries and parts for shipbuilding, semiconductors, and automobiles from their big shipping points. Those are, uh, not coincidentally, some of the biggest exports for South Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, they kicked off the strike with 16 rallies across the country attended by over 20,000 people uh, with truckers chanting things like, we stop, the world will stop, and let's stop driving to change the world. And I loved this quote from the president of the Trucker Solidarity Part of the Union who told uh, Nikkei Asia, a uh, financial paper, in response to questions about the strike, saying, quote, we have no choice but to stop all logistics in Korea. (laughs) That's right. That's so cool. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. I I feel like every time we talk about strikes in Korea, I'm always just like, man... These guys are so cool. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Very badass. And I mean, it's we, almost we, like there's a history of militancy yeah, in the Korean yeah. Peninsula. Yeah. Well, we we heard a statement from the KPTU where they said, "quote Since the agreement that we and the Ministry of Land, Infrastructure, and Transport came to after the strike in June, the ministry has consistently opposed the safe rate system, overturning social consensus, and then, without consulting the union, it decided to extend the sunset clause in a highly unilateral move." So it's like the union has absolutely zero misconceptions about what's going on here. They are 100% clear eyed about the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And unfortunately, uh, the strike has unsu- unfortunately, but also unsurprising, mm-hmm. the strike has met with immediate repression from the right wing government. So, uh, on Friday, the 25th, President Yoon threatened to issue a back-to-work order ruling the strike illegal, which, if that was issued, would threaten striking workers, not the just the union itself, but the, the individual workers, with three years in prison and $23,000 in fines for just refusing to work. That's like, crazy. Not doing blockades, not picketing, not anything which, I mean, that would be ridiculous for those things too, but mm-hmm. just simply for refusing to work. They also threatened to bring in the military to use them as scabs. And then today, uh, Monday, the fifth day of the strike, they arrested three members of the union for illegal activity involved in the strike. And so you're thinking, okay, legal activity involved in a strike. What did they do? Did they, like, uh, I don't know, light, light some scab trucks on fire? Did they, like, you know, ram a scab truck or something? Mm-hmm. Did they... Uh, beat rough up some scabs or something. That, that's probably what it is, right? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> two workers were arrested when they temporarily blocked a scab truck driver's truck and were mildly rude to them. Oh, no. 
They hurt their uh, feelings. That's uh-oh. a crime. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and the third worker was arrested for egging a truck. I can't even imagine what these cops would do if they saw a, a city celebrating a Super Bowl victory. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like just... I, being arrested for that sort of thing is, uh, it's just so incompetent. Like, even with the police state we live in here, I know. That's baffling. It's crazy. Would, it, would, it blows we, my mind. Can, can we not think about the paint on the trucks? I mean, those eggs are so <laughs> hard to get off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. And, and, and the rhetoric coming out of the government is, is absurd. You have the, the president, President Yoon, who called the, the strike, which again isn't blocking the movement of people. In any way, it's only blocking goods that are destined for export. It's not blocking food from getting to people. It's not blocking medicine. It's not blocking the actual transportation of people. It's just blocking export goods. And he responded to the strike by saying, quote, blocking the passage of other vehicles and harassing colleagues taking part in normal operations is an act of violence, (laughs) trampling on another's freedom. We will respond sternly according to the law and principles to all illegal actions. I intend to make clear that what is sought cannot be gained through illegal violence, end quote. Shut no, up. no, it can, only only his <laughs> ends through legalized violence of the state are are allowed. They're throwing eggs. That's violence. Come <laughs> on. Not even they're not even throwing eggs at people. No, like, at vehicles. Like, look, I'm all for expanding what is commonly thought of as the definition of violence to include things like systemic violence that are very real and often downplayed. This is not the right way to do it. This is, this is completely backwards. There is so little serious violence in the world that involves eggs. It's astonishing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's, but the thing is, though, like, you know, it's a ridiculous statement. It's ludicrous to say yes, something like that. Absolutely. But it's also very revealing. Mm-hmm. Because, like, this is one of those times where I'm like, look, you laugh at this because it's goofy and stupid. But there, this is the capitalists telling you what they think. Because to them, the, the violation of their sacrosanct right to make as much profit as possible off your labor is violence in their minds. And it, it like it because yeah. it, it, this is just I feel like this just goes back to that caterpillar story where where they the concept of what violence is is completely flipped. It's not what happens to people. Right. It's not people starving because they're paid no wages. It's when a company cannot dispose of its property in any way that they want to without any restriction whatsoever. Like and and this is consistent across capitalist governments whether it's rail workers in the US who want to be able to strike because they don't have any sick days and they never see their families or school staff in Canada who want to strike because they don't make enough money to pay their heating bills or truckers in South Korea who just want a goddamn minimum wage yeah you, which you, is something you, we see all over the place i mean this relates to gig work on the international scale i mean these workers are putting up a militant effort to end the gig workerification of truckers yeah and but it's and it's just like when if anybody tells you that like oh the state it's a neutral body it's like the state is where people come and different groups come to hash out their interests and come to a compromise. No, wrong, incorrect. And these cases, again, the Railway Labor Act in the U.S., uh, Bill 28 and the notwithstanding clause in Canada, and here, the, the back-to-work order that they're attempting to issue to literally throw truck drivers in jail for not driving their trucks. 
Like that's this, the capitalist state in its barest form, mm-hmm. which is that the state exists to serve the interests of those who fund it, which is the rich. And yeah, well, if, I mean, if, the state the state is a is a method of you know class repression. You know, in a capitalist form, it is the capitalist class repressing the workers. I mean, obviously, in the, in another form, in a socialist sense, would be you know to repress the capitalists. But you know, that's that's a different conversation for another day. Check out our uh, you know what is it the nature of the state episodes. <laughs> yeah, and so uh, now we'll move on to the way we close out every episode, checking in with the Starbucks workers and. Unfortunately, we've got a lot more bullshit from the company going mm-hmm. on. Um, we've uh, got Starbucks is continuing their war on their workers by closing more stores for nonsense reasons. Last Monday, the 21st, uh, after our recording, they announced that they would be closing the Broadway and Denny location in Seattle, which is the first store in Starbucks' home state to unionize. Once again, they cited so-called safety concerns as their reason for disproportionately closing union stores. And so uh, there, there's a local outlet in Seattle called The Stranger that interviewed some of the workers there. So they, they uh, And so the writer there, Connor Kelly, who wrote this piece, said that after talking with the workers that they've noticed a pattern to these closures where they had some workers at stores that did have some safety issues, you know, folks coming in and, and, and you know, causing problems. They would lobby management for more resources, including potentially hiring a security guard, and they would never hear anything. The management would be like, oh, yeah, no, I see you, I hear you, we're not doing that. <laughs> and But the key here is that none of the workers went to the management and said, we have to close the store. Right. This area is far too dangerous. We can't have a Starbucks here. <laughs> like, n- none of the workers were out there saying that. Well, and even then, I mean, like to it go that almost rides that racist line of we have to disinvest with these with these communities where violence exists, and that's somehow going to solve the violence by ext- by removing any sort of you know uh, you know economic uh, ability to to survive. You know, it's not like you know when people are poor, they're more uh, you know put into the position where they have to do things like crime to survive. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, the, the actual um, impetus for this sort of rhetoric does come out of a, a racist, almost redlining style of, of historical political rhetoric. Well, and yeah. additionally, when the workers do get together and unionize to get their ignored demands heard by the corporation, the company turns around and Starbucks says, okay, actually, you should just call the police for any and every little incident and then also make sure to file an internal report, including the police report. And then the company turns around and takes all those reports they just got that they told their employees to start filing and says, oh, look, the location is unsafe. We have to close it. So then you have one worker who told the stranger, quote, we thought that we were creating a paper trail to help our customers and coworkers, but that paper trail was used to shut down our store. So it's like at every step along the way, Starbucks has consistently demonstrated that they do not actually give a single solitary fuck about safety concerns, but they nope. are willing to use safety as a pretext to do the things they were going to do anyway. Yeah, exactly. I was surprised. One time we had a, an issue with uh, kind of a person who was who appeared to be like maybe following people around, and uh, one of the ways that we wanted to deal with that 
was by having one of our uh, workers of color who was who felt like they could communicate with this person, you know, bring them a coffee and have a conversation about like, hey, what's going on? Why is this going on? And having a conversation like a real community to actually do community protection and safety. And I mean, I felt like at the whole at every single turn that like they were going to use that as another reason to fire me. Luckily, I don't that didn't happen. But like, I don't know that the, the feeling of unsafety in that, you know, having a real communication with the community about safety and actually respecting people the fact that you know i feel like that's going to be a write-upable offense pretty pretty i mean at least should highlight the way that starbucks you know puts their rhetoric together in in how these they deal with these situations and that was not a union situation that was not one where i knew that the company was digging for every single like thing to shut down the store yeah so like i mean as we know like not only does shutting the store down destroy the successfully recognized bargaining unit, but the company is, is, is also taking it as an opportunity to go after individual pro-union workers as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, Aaron Bray, who's a former shift supervisor at one of the closed Seattle stores, told reporters, quote, Union workers from closed stores have been transferred into already fully staffed stores that can't or won't offer the stability and hours that we require to make ends meet. And many of those workers have had their hours cut below the threshold for benefits. And so many of these folks, you know, you rely on that job for any benefits. And if you lose all those, especially if you need health care, mm-hmm. <laughs> which... I don't know. I feel like uh, most say it was the sole reason I went to. That's the sole reason I took the job at Starbucks. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things that I think about approximately 100% of workers need. Yeah. (laughs) But then they just are like, oh, hey, no, look, we're closing your store because it's unsafe, but don't worry. We'll transfer you to this other store. And then they transfer you there and they give you like five hours a week. Right. So basically, they can essentially slow roll this system to say, look, no. We're not forcing these pro-union workers out. Yeah, we closed the store, but we let them transfer to another location. No, we didn't give them enough hours, but hey, we kept them employed, so you can't say that we did this as retaliation. Right. Well, and I mean, some of the workers, even despite this extremely steep hill that they have to fight their way up, are just absolutely refusing to take it lying down. Like you have Rachel Ibarra, who was a worker at the Broadway and Denny location, who said, quote, if Starbucks wants me to leave the company, they will have to have me killed. I will die before I let this movement die. We're going to have a fucking union at starbucks they can't just close down all our stores until it's gone the first time i read that i was like god damn (laughs) this is a worker who is like you know really had their consciousness elevated by this uh by by this movement and and by this growing like chain of solidarity between these workers this is somebody who is like really been brought over to the cause yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, workers have been continuing to fight back uh, with strikes all this week. I mean, with the uh, Sheridan and Bailey Starbucks in Buffalo uh, striking on Monday, November 21st in uh, the protests against the company's policy of continued firing of worker organizers. There have been, you know, 15 workers who have been illegally fired in Buffalo alone for mm-hmm. organizing since the drive started last year at uh, it's it's really great that these workers are are putting up this militant fight. I mean, we covered the Red Cup rebellions last week, and and I think that that really highlights the commitment to this union effort that these workers are facing. And I mean, as we talk about the 
uh, success of of these organizing of strikes. We also can talk about the continued success of unions to actually get state recognition for their unions, where the Elliott Avenue location in Seattle uh, voted 16 to 7 in favor of unionizing on the 18th. And it's just so good to to see all of these workers standing up for their rights. Yeah, and and I just wanted to add in real quick. Like this isn't technically Starbucks, but the there have been more and more other coffee places unionizing as well. Like in Philadelphia this week, four locations of a small chain Ultimo Coffee also voted to join Workers United alongside the Union Starbucks in their city. And just this morning, More Perfect Union announced that two stores in Davis, California from a small chain Pete's Coffee uh, are are filing for their union election and have explicitly said that they got assistance from members of Starbucks Workers United in their organizing efforts. So, like, I just... It's funny because like every week we talk about like all this awful shit mm-hmm. that Starbucks is doing. But the biggest takeaway I feel like I have every week is like, look at the inspiration that these workers have been to so many people across the country and how many folks that they've helped organize their workplace. And it's just like Starbucks can keep doing all this bullshit and they can keep harassing their workers and doing awful stuff to them. But nothing is stopping this movement. Like it's it, it's it's so it's so good to watch. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what is it that they say about a single spark? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, speaking of that, we've got a meme for that. Yeah. <laughs> Which is coming up right about now. This one made me keel over laughing when I when I saw it in the notes because I hadn't seen this one before. <laughs> and I just think I, of all the times I've been at a new job and they've sent me to get the bacon stretcher or the bun molder <laughs> or whatever mm-hmm. it may be. <laughs> yeah, like I. So this mean I don't re, I don't remember where I found it, where whoever I stole it from, but, but this is fantastic. So it's it's a picture on a construction site. I don't know. I think the guy's using a cement saw. I'm not a hundred percent sure mm-hmm. what it's that or it's an industrial grinder, but I think it's a cement saw. Um, and. <laughs> He's standing there and he's he's doing his work and 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 there's another guy standing right behind him holding out a paper bag behind all the sparks that this thing's given off and then it's just captioned we told the new guy to catch the sparks because we recycled them <laughs> recycling I mean, sparks these these jokes are are you know they can be a little embarrassing when you're the new person it's a little little hazing ish but it's not mm-hmm. it, i don't think it's as harmful as actual hazing i i know yeah, it's, I mean, actually it's just a little bit of good fun yeah if you get somebody who's new and they seem a little spacey and and it, and you'd ask them to go get the blinker fluid for your work van like as long as you're not doing it all the time i think that's a a, a, a well-meaning enough sort of kidding yeah well and there's there's like a there's a really good scene about this i think it was in reservation dogs i'm not sure what dumb task they had the new guy doing but he's doing the board stretcher i just watched it yeah the board stretcher right and he's like all discouraged because he's like man they played a prank on me and the other guy's like well you're getting paid for this you know and he kind of perks up he's like i guess i am (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah. Yeah, that that rocks. And then, you know, in in, you know, if you're not having a good time with uh your coworkers, I think that that, that this next one kind of highlights mm-hmm. uh a little bit more common of the occurrences while working. 
And uh, this is just a, uh, a, ca- uh, a screenshot of SpongeBob, as so many memes are. SpongeBob, just so good with all, all of these. But it's uh, when you're at work and someone asks you how you're doing and this fish is just like like low glance un unexcited drinking a soda and the un, and the bottom text on this is live in the dream <laughs> you know how many times have you been asked how how's it going and you just like do some sort of sarcastic uh you know re- rebuttal to that it's like ah best day of my life am i yeah. right well, uh, there's a famous tweet that says something to the effect of like, when a person behind a counter says live in the dream, they are telling you they are having the worst day of their entire life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, there was one of these that I think my favorite one for that is there's a line from something about Mary where the guy is asking, he's like, oh, hey, so how's it been going? And he just responds, great, man. Each day's better than the next. <laughs> <laughs> Which like, before you think about it, just sounds like a normal platitude, and you're like, "Oh, actually, that's kind of dark." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, speaking of things that are funny but maybe a little dark, uh, <laughs> the next one is just a tiny little Homer Simpson in a big old bed, and it says, "Me sacrificing my entire career for eight extra minutes of sleep." <laughs> well, I, Very I, relatable. I feel like everyone, everyone has related to that because. I swear, the best sleep you will ever have in your life is like the 15 minutes after you decide not to listen to your mm-hmm. alarm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> you somehow squeeze six hours worth of sleep into those 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're required to. You're, you're contractually obligated to. <laughs> so our next one, which I, I think people probably saw going around the internet because this is like probably the most popular one that we threw on here this week. Where it's just a screen cap from uh, WWE where they, you've got the guy out here interviewing uh, Steve Austin. And, he, and then it's just captioned, I haven't read Marx's Capital, but I've got the Marx of Capital all over my body. <laughs> yeah. which, is a, which is a big Bill Haywood quote. Yeah, yeah. And, I shared know, this on Facebook and someone hopped in the comments and said, Stone Cold Bill Haywood, which <laughs> I really like. <laughs> I don't even care yeah, about wrestling. On the, on the work stoppage yeah, like, one, there was this person who did this, like, uh, you know, I guess, is it a personified dialogue or, or what is it? Where they basically just... Um, they, they they act like there's a continuation of the dialogue and they did it this whole it was pretty funny it was good you know yeah. I, that's the kind of comments we like on our posts none of this uh the starbucks workers are the same as the starbucks owners bullshit <laughs> fuck off with that nar- nonsense yeah yeah well and uh speaking of some nonsense that people occasionally have to put up with this next one is extremely (laughs) relatable because you just have a cat in a hard hat wearing a pretty cute little red sweater and it says me who accidentally wore my nice sweater to work and now it's just gonna be another greasy work hoodie by the end of the day (laughs) which it's like i have made that Uh. mistake with sweaters shoes pants anything you can fucking think of if your job is going to get you even a little bit dirty or it even has a ch- if there's a chance you're taking out the trash do yourself a favor and wear something that work either gave you or that you got from a secondhand store <laughs> yeah it's tragic i remember i i had gotten this thing and i was like you know what it, this this will clean pretty nicely it'll be just fine uh and even if it gets a little bit dirty i'll be able to clean it but then immediately as i'm turning a corner a thread of my brand new sweater gets mm. caught on a metal edge and just tears a big hole in my brand new sweater. Weezer moment. You don't want to be having those <laughs> once you're 
you know, past your early 20s at the top. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And with that, we are going to wrap for this episode. We want to thank everyone who supports the show, even if you are just sharing this with your friends and, you Mm -hmm. know, spreading the word or inviting people into the discord so that they can have these good conversations about organizing. You can do all of those things. If you'd like to support us monetarily, you can do that at patreon.com slash workstoppage. It is what allows us to do this show because we are entirely listener supported. And, you know, also, you know, write reviews places or something. Uh, follow John on Twitter at Facebook Villain. Follow the pod at Work Stoppage Pod. Listen to Beep Beep Lettuce and listen to Red Game Table. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity.